You can turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1. We've begun a series, uh, usually in our evening services, we're going to be looking at the book of James here. We'll be reading from verses 2 to 8, but the, uh, our text for this morning will be uh, James 1, 5 to 8, looking at wisdom. This is God's word from James chapter 1, starting in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Amen. May, may the Lord bless us as we give our attention to his word. So as you, as you gain skill in perhaps your vocation or a hobby, or an activity you enjoy, what usually happens is that what starts out as something of a science, over time, you learn how it becomes an art. Right? You, you start off learning the rules and the structures, and over time you learn the intuitions and the feel. Right? You, you start off learning to cook, strictly following the recipe, leveling off your measurements, but over time you learn, you, you can adapt, and you think, I'm, I'm not sure this, this recipe is giving quite enough garlic powder in there. You add some more, you, you learn the art of cooking as opposed to just the science. Or, or perhaps um, if, if you're estimating for a job and quoting, you learn the art of the quote. It's not just the strict calculation like you start off with of the price of your materials, the perfect labor estimate. No, you learn to take the feel of the job that's being offered and over time learn the art of estimating, the art of quoting well. Now, wisdom, as we see throughout Scripture, wisdom you could consider as the art of living well. There is a science, there's laws and clear teachings in Scripture, but if the Christian life is just a science, we very quickly fall into fundamentalism or legalism. Just, here's it is, it's a strict science. But wisdom reminds us that there is an art. There is a wisdom for how do we live in the gray? How do we navigate the nuances that we encounter in all the multifaceted dimensions of life? We need wisdom to live life well. True wisdom is the art of living a beautiful life, the sort of life that glorifies God. And wisdom isn't just a rule set you can learn quickly, something you can memorize. Wisdom is the gift of God. So we must seek wisdom from God. And our simple points that we're looking at in this text is to, for us to recognize that we lack wisdom. And so we need to ask God and we need to ask in faith. I'm calling this message, Wise Up, because we all need to wise up, and we need to ask God about it, and we need to ask Him in faith. So consider with me um, the end of verse 4, uh, how James leads into our text here. T take a look. So he says, let steadfastness, he's talking about trials, let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, 
let him ask God. So this text that we're beginning at in verse 5, it's flowing out of what came before. And James has been talking about how trials, as we undergo them, they produce in us steadfastness that we might not lack. And it's as if now James is backing up from this specific idea of learning to gain endurance through our trials, which he says here that you might be lacking in nothing. And then it's as if it reminds me, he steps back and says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you know, speaking of lacking, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. And he's not asking the if here uh, seriously. It's a rhetorical question. We all know we lack wisdom. It's like saying, if, if any of you lack love, we, we know we all lack love. But James is artful, and he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, this greater, this broader, this more holistic concept, let him ask God. If any of you lacks wisdom. Okay, and when James says wisdom, he means probably something different than you and I first think of when we think about lacking wisdom. Um, you see, when we think of wisdom, we most often think of it as a specific intellectual idea to help us with a particular decision. So we think, um, I'm dating someone and I need to decide if I should marry them. I need wisdom to help make this decision. Or um, I'm wondering about quitting my job and pursuing a new career. I, I need wisdom to make this decision. That's a very narrow way of thinking about wisdom, included in the whole, for sure. But that's just a small part about what wisdom is in Scripture. Now, James is writing as one who's well-versed in the Old Testament. And we have a whole section of books in the Hebrew Bible which are referred to as wisdom literature. And many have reflected that the book of James in many ways reflects this wisdom literature. And wisdom throughout the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Psalms, uh, the idea of wisdom is a holistic concept which you might think of as ethical skill for living well. Ethical skill for living well. That is, living a beautiful, God-glorifying life. Walking in God's ways, living in the fear of God, living a life of holiness. Uh, James comes close to giving us a definition of wisdom in James 3.17. This is how he describes wisdom, right? If we want to know what he's talking about, it's helpful to look at the other place where he actually describes what wisdom is. James says that the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. So you see, wisdom for James encompasses both good character and good works. It covers it all, good character and good works. That is wisdom in James, namely Christian maturity. That's what we're talking about, maturity, discipleship, which really for us is nothing less than Christ-likeness. That's what true wisdom is. It's living in the way Jesus would live. It's reflecting Christ in our words and actions. It's growing up into Christ who is wisdom itself. And we desperately need this wisdom because we lack it in so, so many ways. And our trials, the temptations we undergo, those remind us that we need wisdom. And more than we just need help making these particular external decisions that pop up at different aspects of our life, we need a God-shaped heart and a God-shaped mind. 
We need to be people who consistently walk in God's ways, who consistently seek the things that are above, who consistently show forth the fruit of the Spirit and really reflect Jesus in the world. So more than being just a quality of our decision-making, wisdom is a quality of the heart. It's a quality of the heart. You see, more than you need to be able to make a better decision, you need to be a better person, transformed from the inside out by the Spirit of God. You see, we, we often think our issues are kind of these external cosmetic things. And it reminds me of the way I thought about my first car. Um, I, I was fortunate. My dad had saved in storage for me um, a 1991 uh, Plymouth Sundance, which, if you know what that is, it's, it's really not a great car. But I was turning 16, and I was really excited that I was going to actually have my own car. I thought that was pretty cool. And this was an old car. It wasn't doing super well. But, and my dad was wise in how he corrected me in this, but I was really excited when I was 16. I was like, Dad, I'm going to get that car, and I'm going to like put a skirt on it and get new mags and a spoiler, and this car is going to be so awesome. And my dad was like, I don't think this is the type of car you want to try to soup up, son. Uh, but I appreciate the ambition. And, you know, I thought I could just fix up this car with some cosmetic fixes, but I really just needed a new car, and, which I was able to get when that one died on me a few years later. Uh, we often think our life is kind of just like these external fixes, like, like these um, extras on the car, that, you know, if, if only I just had had a bit more money, you know? then I'd be able to do better. If I could only uh, just find a more satisfying career or lose a bit more weight or just meet the right person, then, then my life would kind of be in order, you know? And I think I'd be living well. And though each of these things can be good in their own way, don't get me wrong, um, they don't get all the way to our heart. And that's where true change occurs, in our hearts. And these externals aren't ultimately the problems we feel. It's our own shame and sadness and fear and anxiety that is wrapped around them that makes them feel like a problem. But all of those feelings are coming from our hearts. And so in all this, what we most need is that Christ-like heart, that wisdom from God that comes and meets us in the heart depths of our shame in the depths of our deepest anxieties and fears and sadnesses and bitternesses. We need God to be at work transforming us in all these ways. And when you think about it, more than making the right decision, isn't this what you really want? Don't you want to love God more and to know more his love for you? Don't you want to just be able to rest your identity in him and just find complete satisfaction and all that he is for you in Jesus? Don't you want to just be able to be content, to trust his promises, to rejoice in his goodness, to be a person who's just overflowing from the heart with love, with mercy and kindness, goodness, faithfulness? Isn't that what you really want, just to be more like Jesus? The wisdom of a Christ-like, transformed, spiritual heart? I... Uh, I, I loved, I, I discovered later in life the great music of an old recording artist you might be familiar with uh, from, way, I think, the 70s, Keith Green. And his songs are just very powerful and just, they actually transformed my life at a certain point. But I was reminded of this song where he says, um, he, he says these words. He says, as each day passes by, I feel my love run dry. I get so weary, worn, and tossed round in the storm 
While I'm blind to others' needs, I'm tired of planting seeds. I seem to have a wealth of so many thoughts about myself. But I want to, I need to be more like Jesus. I want to, I need to be more like him. Isn't that what you want? To be more like Jesus. We see our lack. We lack this Christ-like, spirit-wrought wisdom from God that permeates down to our deepest being. But we're not stuck here. James instructs us with something to do, right? Don't you love it when there's something clear and practical to do? And something as easy as this. He says in verse 5, take a look again, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all, without reproach, and it will be given to him. Let him ask God. You see, the solution to our lack of wisdom is, is not that we need more knowledge, uh, more reading. We need to search out the self-help gurus and really figure out how we can tinker with our life and really tweak it till we get it just right. Um, no, th- that's not the solution to where this wise life is really found. James says it's found in prayer. We need to ask God for wisdom. And that's more interesting than you would at first think because there's many things that we seek things in this world for, right? If you want to learn how to cook, you consult a recipe book, or to repair your car, you consult a manual, right? There are things that we learn from people in this world, but James doesn't say to ask a person for this wisdom. He says that you need to go to God for this wisdom because this is not the type of wisdom you can learn from a person. It's the type of wisdom that can only be wrought of God in your heart, you go to the source. If you, want, if, if you lack bread, you go to the bread maker. If you lack, or the baker, I should say. If you lack uh, a candlestick, you go to the candlestick maker. If you lack a spouse, you go to young adults this Saturday at 7 p.m., and it will be given to you. But if we are to seek, where do we find wisdom? It is found in God. He is the source. He is the one to which we go for wisdom. These self-help gurus that might be interesting to listen to now and again, um, they don't have the true heavenly wisdom. They have tips, they have tricks, but they can't change your heart. We need to ask God for wisdom because he is the only one that can actually give give it because this wisdom is spiritual wisdom, not fleshly wisdom. And James actually gives us two encouragements. He gives us two inducements in this text for why and how we can ask God for wisdom. He reminds us first of God's generous heart. He says, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. That is, he's saying to ask the giving God. And the idea behind this idea of God being generosity is the idea that he gives without strings attached. God gives freely and he gives without reproach. And At times, each of us, we struggle, I think, to boldly seek this wisdom from God by prayer because we struggle with that sense of our own unworthiness. Um, And that feeling like we're constantly failing, it makes us feel a bit timid for going to God. When when knowing our weakness, we, we almost imagine that God will respond to us with this idea of, like, really, you're coming to ask me for wisdom? I know how you live. I know your heart. You want, really, you want more of the Spirit? You really want to be more Christ-like after what you just did? After the way I know you'll do it again? 
we fear God's reproaching our boldness. And so it's important here that James reminds us that God is generous. He does not reproach us when we ask of him, even when we ask boldly of him. Um, in, in, In my wife's family, we've developed a concept that we call asking shame. Okay, asking shame. Um, I don't know if any of you guys eat at Fazoli's. It's kind of like fast food Italian. But anyways, if you get a meal at Fazoli's, they tell you you get unlimited breadsticks, right? So they give you some breadsticks, but they don't give you that much to start. So you eat the breadsticks, and then at, we're, when we're around the table as a family, it's always, okay, whose turn is it to go ask for more breadsticks? And we've, we've realized among uh, each of us that we each have a different threshold limit of how bold we are in asking for the breadsticks. And we, we, we refer to it as our asking shame. So the one who has a lot of asking shame, you're kind of embarrassed to ask for the breadsticks, so they go up and they're like, can we get five more breadsticks? And then you finish up the five, you're like, great, we have to go ask for more breadsticks. And then if you develop some boldness, um, one time I was feeling really bold, and I think I went up and I was like, can we get 15 more breadsticks? And I was sure they were going to like shut me down. But needless to say, they gathered them up, 15 breadsticks. We didn't have to go up again for the rest of the time. Because they were actually more generous, and they were more ready to give than I anticipated. And we, we worry even about some random employee at a restaurant secretly judging us for our boldness to ask, thinking, why do you need that many breadsticks? I know how many breadsticks you've already asked for. Really, more breadsticks? But we sometimes think that way with God. But God, he doesn't reproach us, even when we boldly ask for the same things again and again. He's not secretly judging you and criticizing you back at it again, asking for more purity, asking for more holiness, asking for more self-control. Man, no, God is generous. He really does want to give. He wants us coming back again and again for more and more, and it's his delight to give because he's the giving God. And you, know, you know how like, it can be hard to, con- to convince people that you really want to be generous, because we're naturally skeptical. Like, you know you have someone in your home, and you're like, really, our house is your house. Anything in the fridge you can eat. And then you're like, you kind of see they're hungry the next day, and you're like, why aren't they eating anything from the fridge? And you realize you have to be very forceful on the generosity. No, actually, these things here, you can eat them. These granola bars in the cupboard, they are yours. Help yourself. Because we have a hard time getting it into our head, this kind of generosity. But God is extremely generous towards us. We ask this giving God who gives without reproach. And here's the second encouragement James gives us for why we should be asking for this so consistently. He says, he gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. How wild is that? Actually, a promise that God will answer this prayer, and it will be given him. You see, God's not a God of all hype and no action. He doesn't, as we experience again and again, over-promise and under-deliver. God meets everything he says. Everything he promises, he performs to the nth de- degree. He's, he's not like what many of you have probably experienced if you're uh, doing that road trip through South Dakota, which is usually not the best place to road trip, but you see like thousands of signs for Waldrug. And it's just like, Waldrug up ahead, Waldrug up ahead, see this at Waldrug. And you're like, man, this must be the greatest place in all the world. And then you finally get to Waldrug and you're like, 
cool. <laughs> like this is, this is, and maybe there's a Waldrug lover in here, and I don't mean to offend, but really, Waldrug is not that great. It's not worth the 3,000 billboards. It's extremely over-promising and definitely under-delivers for all the hype. But not so with God. He delivers on all his promises. Every promise in scripture is like a billboard pointing us to the reality of God. But then when we find God in the having, we find that he was actually more beautiful and satisfying than we even anticipated. There's more in God than we could ever think or ask or imagine. God answers these prayers for wisdom. But it's important that we understand the way in which God's answer, the the way in which God answers this prayer, okay? Because this sort of praying, this sort of life, it's not a one-shot deal. It's not as if we at one time pray to God for wisdom, and then our savings account of wisdom is filled up for the rest of our life, and we're, we're good to go. No, God and the wisdom he gives, it isn't like filling up a savings account, but it's more like a spending account. That as we have need, as we go about spending our energies on the things of this life, God is continually answering these prayers for wisdom, continually giving enough funds so that we don't ever hit those insufficient funds. God answers this prayer continually as we are continually supplicating him for more grace. And so we need to be always going back to God's infinite storehouse of goodness, his infinite treasure chest of wisdom, knowing that he can always provide what we need for the spending of our daily energies. And if you've been walking with God for a while, can't you look back over the years, all those times, the good times of the bad, and when you look at how God has supplied, doesn't your heart join with that hymn and just says, all I've needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Great is thy faithfulness. And this really is such an amazing promise that God gives Christ-like wisdom to those who ask him. But there is a condition in this passage. The question is, how should we ask? And James says that we must ask in in faith. Look at verse 6. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So James states that the condition for receiving the answer to this prayer is that the prayer be offered in faith, right? That sounds like an important condition. So we should probably figure out what is James saying when he's saying you need to ask in faith because it's actually a multifaceted answer. Uh, Faith faith includes a number of different factors. Uh, Briefly here, asking in faith means asking as a reconciled child of God through faith in Christ's work, being able to say with him in the Lord's Prayer, Father who art in heaven. It's asking with faith in Christ as a child of God. Asking in Jesus' name, you could also say. Secondly, it means um, asking in faith means asking with a trust in your Father's heavenly ability, his generosity, and his promise-keeping faithfulness. Right? That's what we just looked at. Faith in God's generous heart. Faith in God's ability to supply. Because we ought not doubt God's generosity and content ourselves with small things. We want to ask trusting God's generous heart because we don't want to shortchange ourselves, right? We want all that God has to give us. Uh, I, I, was re- I was reminded 
on this point just of, of a story back when my sister and I were teenagers, and she got invited out to McDonald's for lunch with this family we were friends with. And they had their five kids, and she was there with them, and, and the mom told my sister um, that she could order anything she wanted off the McDonald's menu, which to my sister sounded kind of crazy because we were definitely a strict, like, dollar-value-only family. And so the thought of even, like, getting your whole own meal was kind of crazy. But so she, was, she, she wasn't quite sure. She felt kind of shy, so she decided that she would just, like, order the smallest thing off the menu, like a four-piece nuggets. And then all the other children in the family come up, and they're getting the number one, the number four, the Big Mac meal. And she's like, maybe I actually could have asked for that and experienced this glorious full McDonald's meal to myself. But because she didn't really trust Mrs. Braxma, she shortchanged herself with the four-piece nuggets. But we ask with a trust that when God says to ask, he means ask. When he says he will give in response to our asking, we believe it because God has said it. And so that's what faith includes. It includes asking as a child of God, asking with faith in our generous, generous heavenly father. But I think the main thrust of this verse, when it's telling us to ask in faith, uh, means this. Asking in faith means asking with an intention to obey. It means asking with a fervent desire, an intention of your heart, to obtain this answer to prayer and to practice it, to apply it, to obey it. Now, c- consider the fact, in these later verses, we're actually not told what the person of faith looks like. We're told what the doubter looks like. It's the doubt that is described. And here's how, here's how it's described, starting in verse 6. The one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, the word translated doubt here, or doubting, um, isn't like questioning something whether it's true. It means more hesitating between two opinions, halting, going back and forth, wavering between one way and another way. And that's why the uh, picture of the waves and the wind here is, is, uh, is apropos, because the, w- the waves go wherever the wind goes. The wind changes the directions, so the waves change directions. They're blown about. They, they aren't moving of their own volition. They're being controlled by external forces. And this person James is describing as a waverer, someone being tossed about by external forces. And he describes in verse 7 that he is double-minded and unstable, an unstable, double-minded man. Now, this word double-minded is really interesting. Some people think that James actually made it up because he's he's adding a prefix, uh, dip, and then he's using the word psyche. You know, we think we have ourselves, psyche. And what it literally is, it's a two-souled person, a double-souled person. You might think a double-hearted person. Double-minded is a pretty good fit. And the only time in the New Testament this word is used is here and in James chapter 4. And James chapter 4 illuminates for us what James is meaning here in chapter 1. In chapter 4, he's describing that person who seeks to be a friend of the world and also a friend of God. You know that, that famous passage, friendship with the world is enmity with God. And he's, this is also in the context of asking James says in James 4, 3, that you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? You see, this person in James 4 
is someone who is not fully committed to God in their asking, but wants to live for self, wants to live to please self. And so James' admonition and summary in James 4.8 is draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's who he's talking about, the double-minded, the one who wants to be a friend of the world and a friend of God. You see, this double-minded person is really a hypocrite. It's someone who is not faithful to God. It's someone who puts on a pretense of religion while at the same time wanting to live for themselves in this world. And so, that's important to understand because when James in chapter 1 is talking about the one who doubts, he is not talking about a, a weak, uh, sometimes a wavering Christian who's occasionally doubting God's goodness, who has an overly sensitive conscience, who sometimes lacks assurance. That's not what James is referring to. This double-minded doubter is more a hardened hypocrite, one who is playing both sides, God and the world, seeking their own gain through both avenues. It's like that person, if you've, if you've ever played the game of Risk, you know, you take over continents with your armies, and you find it's very effective to make alliances, and then you make alliance with someone, and then later on, they, be, they betray you. They betray the alliance and make a new alliance with another person. And that only ever works once, right? Because you realize that this person wasn't actually in the alliance with you to help you. They just wanted the protection and force you could give them. And as soon as something better came along, enough of that, break that alliance, form a new alliance. That is double-mindedness. It's a person trying to have their cake and eat it too. Have the show of religion, um, hoping, hoping, praying to God, um, God, that you would bless me, that you would prosper me. Would you comfort me? Would you make my children successful? But at the same time, saying, but I'm not willing to give up my lusts. I'm not willing to give sacrificially to the poor. I'm not, I'm not willing to commit to a church family to give myself for the least of these. I'm not willing to give up my pride and depend wholly on the work of Christ. No, I want your blessings, but I don't want you. I don't want to give up. I don't want to deny myself and bear the cross and follow Christ. They want the benefit of God without commitment to God. It's like, and God knows better. God isn't taken in by a sneaky alliance and liable to get tricked, right? Even you as parents, you know that if your young child is all excited about wanting a puppy, you know whether they actually have the intention to take on the responsibility to fully care for it, right? You aren't going to be taken in by this, uh, this desire without responsibility. And God also, God is not to be mocked. God won't be taken in by us, and he knows those who are just trying to use him, and he will not be had in that way. And so it makes so much sense that James, in our text, continues saying that that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. The double-minded person, the double-souled, the person trying to be a friend of the world, they're not going to get the wisdom of God. They're not going to get that Christ-like heart that we need. It's the double-minded person, unstable in all their ways. And so if we're not going to be double-minded in this way, if we're not going to be hypocritical in this way, what does it look like to ask in this proactive faith? Well, we can take the opposite of this double-mindedness and see that we are called to a single-mindedness, a all our heart together, as David says in Psalm 86, 
a heart united to fear God's name. Not fragmented into God and the world, but coming together, united to fear God's name. And so that's why I said that asking in faith is asking with an intention to obey, with an intention that as a heart gets formed in the wisdom of God, a desire to live out and live into this wisdom of God. Asking in faith is asking with a heart posture that is ready and willing to deny self, take up the cross, battle lust, deny the world, and follow Christ. It's the posture that James wraps around in chapter 4 again to as the person who is submitted to God, resisting the devil, drawing near to God, and walking in humility and repentance. It is this obedience-ready faith that receives the answer of God's wisdom. This obedience-ready faith. And this is important to understand because, again, God doesn't answer our prayers for wisdom usually statically. Here's what I mean. It's not like you pray and the wisdom comes into you right then and you have it like a charge up to use later on. No, God answers the prayers for wisdom in giving the wisdom at the moment and at the time that we need it. God works through what we call secondary means, secondary measures. It's not in the moment of prayer often that God answers, but in the actions of life. Yes, God can answer our prayers in, in a moment, for sure. But these ones for, for wisdom are largely coming, and they are prayers um, that God answers as we work them out. And this prayer of faith is most often answered as you step out in faith. And it is actually this obedient faith, this stepping out in faith, that is the scenario in which God most works to answer our calls for help. Um, con consider that if you were really, um, you wanted to, to start a new fitness regimen and you were going to hire a personal trainer, and you're asking the personal trainer for help, and so they set out your workout regimen, they set out your nutrition and diet guidelines, they're ready to coach you. But then if you don't do anything with that, if you don't actually get into the gym, you don't actually prep the food, they, they can't help you in that. And it shows that you don't really trust them. You don't really trust that this is the plan that you need that's going to work. But if you really trust your personal trainer and you're really committed and believing what they say, then they're there to spot you on your reps. They're there to encourage and coach you when you're feeling tired. They're, they're there to encourage you to make the right food choices, to get the rest you need, to, to instruct and train. And you're working together. And your call for this help, this fitness that you want, it's answered as you start trying to walk it out and the trainer comes alongside and is supporting and encouraging you all the while. It's a, it's a mysterious relationship, God's works and our works. We get a, we get, we, we get a taste of this when Paul is teaching the, the Philippians in Philippians 2.13, saying, saying to them, you need to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, so he says, you go do the work, trusting that as you do the work, God's doing his work. He's answering your prayers. He's giving you the wisdom you need. He's drawing you to himself. And so, we're to ask for wisdom and faith, which means asking with the childlike trust in who our Father is to us, trusting his generous heart, 
asking with a desire to obtain, an intention to obey, and with this singleness of purpose, willingness to deny the flesh, total commitment to the way of Jesus, and the path of wisdom. And to the faithful asker, this text provides an amazing promise, and it will be given him. Christiformity, the transformation of our hearts to be what we've always wanted and ultimately need to be. It's an amazing promise to give this Christ-like wisdom to those who ask. One of the many great and precious promises of Scripture. It reminds us of God's other promises along the same vein, that he will perfect that which concerns you, that he will finish the work that he started in you, that he will never leave you nor forsake you, that he will draw near to you, that he will even give you of his own Holy Spirit. Amazing and precious promises. But the problem is, we look at this often and we think, but my faith is so small. My faith is so weak. I'm not sure that God really responds to one whose faith is as weak as mine. And we feel our weakness. We feel our fleshiness. We, we feel our heart being drawn to other things. And so you think, is there any hope for me and my small faith? Me and my weak or minuscule faith? And why would God answer the prayers of someone who is as weak as I? How can these promises be mine when I know my own unworthiness? Well, the glorious truth is that you weren't made a recipient of these precious promises because you were noble or because you had the sort of faith that moves mountains. No, all these promises, all these prayers that God answers, they are yours because they've been earned for you by the completed work of Jesus Christ. You see, your faith, it's not the ground of God's work in your life. It's merely the hand that receives what he has done for you in Jesus. And we trust that Jesus, he was the only perfect one that had unwavering faith, single-minded devotion to God, entire commitment to obey his Father's will at every point. Jesus embodied the perfect wisdom of God. And it's through our faith in him that he becomes to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.31. Therefore, God doesn't answer our prayers for Christ-like wisdom according to the size of our faith, but according to the faithfulness of Christ. So even in your weak faith, it is the faithfulness of Christ that brings the answer. To your prayers. And so, let's not grow weary or discouraged, but let us, brothers and sisters, press on to know the Lord. Let's press on to be conformed to the image of Jesus, to walk in heavenly wisdom with a fervent desire to obey our Lord, knowing that his work in us and his work through us, it's been guaranteed and it's been purchased for us by our faithful Lord Jesus Christ. And in that, we can rejoice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've so generously revealed to us the mystery of Christ, the mystery of the gospel that was once hidden in ages and yet has been revealed to us, to us who are unworthy, us who are selfish. Lord, you have revealed the mystery of Christ in us, the hope of glory. We ask for greater faith in his finished work. 
that we would more and more trust and find our rest in him and who he is to us. And we do ask, Lord, that you will grant us wisdom. Lord, we believe that you want to give it. We believe you want to transform us more and more into the image of your son, that that is the true destiny of the child of God. And so we ask your help. We ask that you will keep your promise to us and mature us individually, but also corporately, that you would be conforming us, that you would call back those that are wanting to run after the world, those wanting benefit from God and yet wanting to live for self. Lord, stop them in their tracks and show them that true and fulfilling life is only found on the narrow path, the way of the Lord Jesus. Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. Help our unbelief, and may we be people praying for wisdom all our days, being able to look back at the end, saying that you were faithful. You were faithful always. We bring these prayers to you through Christ's work and with faith in his name. And all God's people said, amen.